0: Welcome to Dr. Cindy Speaks. Regular musings and reflections on politics, current events, and life as a congressional candidate. Dr. Cindy Banyer is a mom and small business owner fighting for our water, our health, our community. She's running for the people of Southwest Florida, trying to flip Florida 19 from red to blue. Listen as she speaks truth to power and gets real about being a mom and a candidate. All right, everybody, thank you so much for joining me here today. This is Dr. Cindy Bannier with Dr. Cindy Speaks, and we are recording this podcast here on July 2nd, 2020 at 2.40 p.m. I am so happy to be here with you today. Uh, we have another unfortunately high record of coronavirus cases here in the state of Florida today. Over 10,000 cases were reported. And uh, there's a lot of stuff going on in this country right now that needs immediate attention for people who really care about our community. And that's why I'm so very fortunate here today to be joined by an amazing congressional candidate, Mia Mason from maryland and uh, she is part of the no dem left behind coalition with me and i am going to bring her on here and we are going to talk a little bit about our respective races and where we see things going in our country today so
1: mia are you there yes i am here glad to hear you uh speaking so clearly we got the little bit of bugs fixed
0: Good, good. Every now and then you got to give it another try, right? We tried to do this podcast just a few moments ago and there was a couple technical problems, but I think we got them sorted out now. So thank you so much for joining us here, Mia. Why don't you go ahead and start off by telling us a little bit about yourself
1: and what you're doing over there. Well, I am Mia Mason. I am a congressional candidate way over here in a small little rural district that hugs the Chesapeake Bay, has Ocean City in it and i have to tell you that you know i started out my life actually in virginia so i'm a transplant like many others in any other state and i became a veteran i fought for our country for over 20 years in the navy the army and the dc national guard and i became a friend of many throughout all of our communities including the lgbt community especially when like things like don't ask don't tell uh Hmm. fell however i had to become more of an advocate because you know, it didn't include me all the way. And this is why the military decided that it was okay to discharge me. I lost my job. I lost my car. I lost my yeah. home. I lost a lot. Um, and then I finally got it all back. I got back in the military, got to retire. And then we have this current administration that wanted to do it again, but to tens of thousands of people. Yeah. And we finally got that stopped through the Supreme Court just weeks ago and now with this pandemic we have millions of people all across the country going through the same similar thing like me who have lost their job lost their car lost their opportunities and are losing their health care amidst this entire pandemic so even out here in our rural little area up here in maryland where we have good manufacturers good jobs and public transportation in some parts of the area it is honestly failing Uh, because of poor leadership. And it's time to get that changed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The leadership that we see nationally under President Trump um, has been abhorrent in so many different ways. Um, And, you know, for me, being in Florida here, we have Trump's crony, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis, who refuses data and science and fact just to do whatever Trump wants. And that is also terrible. And it goes all the way down to the local level here where uh, I live in Lee County and we have a bunch of local officials, county commissioners, city council, and even the mayor who would just rather look the other way. And line their own pockets instead of helping everyday people. So, yeah, I I hear you on that, Mia. So thanks for sharing. I
1: agree. We have to get rid of that buddy-buddy system. Uh, Mm -hmm. I had to do that throughout my entire military career. Break down that buddy-buddy system. Because if I wasn't out there drinking the beers, chugging it down with them, hunting turkeys with them, Mm -hmm. I wasn't, quote, part of the clan, the clique, whatever you want to call it. The girls' club, the boys' club. It all has its own name, but, you know, real leadership, but honestly stick up for everybody and have zero tolerance for discrimination because we're there to get the job done. And like you said, not line their own pockets. And it's been going on for way too long that that's been happening and it has to stop.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I just wanted to loop back to make it very clear about, your candidacy here and how historic it is. Mia is the first trans woman to be a major party candidate for Congress in the United States. Isn't that right, Mia? Did I get that that, all right?
1: That is correct. That is correct. You know, I I, I should, I am honored to have that title. It is amazing to have that title. I never expected in my entire life to be the first at anything, but it is, It is a great burden as well, because the thing is, is I was out there just like any other woman doing my (laughs) job, doing what I needed to do. And then this historical moment has plateaued to this occasion. And I'm like, oh, well, you didn't need to know that. You shouldn't care about it. It's just like, you know, uh, if I was going to the grocery store and you see me as a regular woman. But Uh with this, 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 you know, status now, it is an example for our entire community. That we are moving up beyond the state and local levels, but Mm -hmm. to the federal level. And then eventually, maybe the White House, if we honestly want to go there, Mm -hmm. uh, to restore the equity and equality that everybody needs, regardless of their nation of origin, their color, or their sex, and their religion.
0: Absolutely. And you know, one of the things I appreciate about you is the, the humbleness, by which you serve, and I know that you, you know, you are so concerned about all of the issues in your community and in your district that this one component of it, you know, is just another essential feather in your cap, so to speak. Um, but I, I think it is very um, amazing that you can be such a comprehensive leader in your community and in the United States um, and fill this historic role. So I, I just always like to celebrate that because I think representation matters. And I think people um, who have lived experiences that are different from others help all of us learn together.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, and you're a boxing mom, so even more hats off to you.
0: <laughs> I don't know. It was funny because um, we were on uh that no dem left behind. I believe it was the ambassador pizza party last night and everybody was talking about their military service. And, you know, I have so much respect for people who have gone into the military. I know how much effort and work and, you know, physical, psychological and emotional challenges there are that go along with that. Um, And I think I've had my own, but I always, you know, everybody was saying, "I know, I've served this long, I've served this long. And I'm like, Well, I'm pretty tough, too. I'm a boxer, but I'm not sure if I'm even on the same level as all these folks who who are veterans.
1: Well, let's just say that I've had a lot of long nights working, um, you know, looking through cameras, looking through rifles. It didn't matter. But, uh, you know, the way that I can judge this up is if you you take a little glimpse of time and you say from 9-11 to Hurricane Katrina to 2013, we have been at war that entire time. Uh-huh. And Mia has been overseas and here in the United States fighting for our country. You know, that's a lot. A lot of people do a lot of things in that span of time, which is a small glimpse of our life, which only makes it like a quarter or, you know, a third of our life. But that is a lot of time dedicated and sacrificed away from our family, our uh-huh. loved ones. And our communities who, you know, are here in America doing what they do best and making this community better. And I'm thankful that they did because when I came home, I I at least had a platform or a plateau to build to protect my future civil rights on. And it's now that I now have to continue that by being the example and the leader to represent them, listen to them even further and present their case to a higher court, which, you know, I don't have to do that. They already did. It is about making sure that that it is fully protected, even for us women, because, you know, this administration wants to take us back down a dark road to where we can use the word pr- property, you know, and, and that's just not a good thing to even talk about. But it is something that That is in my heart, my passion when I saw this administration, you know, go after our our friends and immigrants, go after people who were traveling to our country, they wanted to build a wall, they wanted to go after people in their homes based on their color or sexual orientation, and then they did the same thing for our education and then our military, and I stood up at the Women's March and I said, That is wrong. Now you've Uh came after me and I've already went through all of this BS again. I'm not going to let it happen again for anyone else. Uh You know, I I called out to them and I said, look, you run for office. 2018 was the year of the woman. The blue wave. And we did okay. But we need to finish that up. We need to make this blue wave of 2020 capture the House, the Senate, and the White House. Absolutely. I do it. Absolutely,
0: I think we can. And I think that what we have going for us now is that we are in a huge uh, period of transition here in the United States, and we absolutely need strong voices to make that happen. Um, but before we talk about that a little bit more, I did want to just reel back because, you know, you were talking about that time period where we had been at war for a long time, and I want to talk about our the, the position of endless war, but I just wanted to share what I was doing during that time as well. During that time, I was actually overseas myself um, learning about international development. I had the idea of um, diplomacy in, in my heart. So I wanted to learn about other cultures and be somebody who that could facilitate Intercultural understanding and relationships so that we would be a stronger country in terms of being the United States, but also a stronger global community, having connectivity between different countries. And I that's what I had studied. And I lived in Taiwan and Japan. And I did my master's research in Indonesia. And I did my doctoral work in the Philippines and uh, really focusing on how we can develop good government and then good relations between countries. I will add in,
1: in Japan. What? Where did you live in Japan?
0: Well, that was the next part that I was going to talk about is how I actually have a lot of Navy friends <laughs> that I met in Japan. Um, because I lived in the southern island of Kyushu. Um, my university was in Beppu, which is like a tiny mountain town. But um, in order for me to pay my way and essentially not get deported from Japan for non-payment of my, my tuition, I had to work in Fukuoka. Uh, Fukuoka is the biggest city in Kyushu which is right next to (laughs) Sasebo well the biggest city next to Sasebo that's not Nagasaki did you ever roll into port at Sasebo uh
1: didn't need to we spent a lot of time in South Korea we were more Ah. focused like on SARS and MERS during that time Ah. but uh I was stationed in Yukuska uh and I lived in Yasura Uh, And I would normally walk the Blue Road all the way to and from base and then walk through the uh, base. And I even lived at Itchy Tower on base uh, during my last year, uh, being uh, stationed there because it took forever to get on base housing. But uh, from 2001 to 2004, you know, I enjoyed Japan. I climbed Mount Fuji in 2004 right before I left. But, um, you know, we were super busy during that time. I didn't get a lot of time to go see, you know, uh, Hiroshima, Nagasaki. I didn't go to Sasabo. Um, went to a couple other places I'm not allowed to talk about. But it is it is beautiful to go see these countries and their islands that are out there that we go tour around and go play war games. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you where I was uh, without saying it. But it It, it mattered. Um, you know, we got to engage in the community and make a big difference there. And yeah. even army that was there was super helpful. And mm-hmm. honestly, I didn't know that you could go over there and go teach. Um, mm-hmm. I, what were you teaching? Well,
0: I did my master's and my PhD there. So I I studied. I was also a kindergarten teacher in Fukuoka. <laughs> I was part of. I, I was actually working as a bartender at night and then a kindergarten teacher during the day. And that's, and then boxing, like in between those two, because I had my pro card in Japan. So I would basically go
1: from one to another. Um, So did you like the teaching all year idea that was in Japan?
0: uh, Yeah. You know, I had a lot of respect for how they approached their education system, but it's a very different way than the way that we do it in the United States. Their system is very much, um, they're, they're organizationally focused, right? So everybody has these kind of community groups and their school group is one of them. So the youth are, you know, actually almost equally the part of their school and their family. (laughs) And, um, it's fascinating. Actually, my, my house in Beppu was very close to a boy's, um, I don't know. It's like a boarding school kind of facility where they used to play baseball. Um, they recruited people youth from all over Japan to come and play baseball in that area. And we would see the boys like run down the street from their house to the, the ball fields every day. Um, and, you know, it's interesting, like, the, 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 the youth are part of those groups all day, all night, in the morning, on the weekends. Kids are in their uniforms on the weekends doing all sorts of activities. So it's interesting, and I, and I think um, it's valuable for them, but I think it would be hard to replicate for us here.
1: Yeah, it is. Uh, that was one of the things I did not like when I came back here. Uh, when I lived there, one of the cool things was is I had a flip phone. I could text message, I could surf a web page on it, I could uh, use the front and back camera on it. Mm-hmm. And then I came back to America and I got stuck with a Blackberry Pearl <laughs> and I was so disappointed. Uh, so
0: <laughs> that is hilarious. And you're right that Japan was always ahead on those kind of technologies. I think that we had just missed, missed each other because I moved to Japan in 2005. I was yeah, in Taiwan we, we during SARS. We
1: missed each other because uh, I finished out my tour in November of 2004. I basically came came home on Thanksgiving and I arrived in Afghanistan. Like, uh, I finally, after being in Afghanistan, I finally got to my ship on Thanksgiving Day. So, mm-hmm. like, after the towers fell, after all the travel mm-hmm. lifted and stuff, I finally got overseas, got into Afghanistan, then got to my ship on Thanksgiving Day. So, mm-hmm. it, it was quite a long journey leg to get there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, certainly. But I will just back to like the funny technology in Japan is that I actually had a phone, I think I actually still have it, to be honest, I gave it to my kids to play with, um, that had a television on it. And Mm -hmm. you could open it, it was a flip phone. And then you could rotate the screen around and fold it again. And it had an antenna that you could pull up. And you could watch local Japanese television. If you wanted,
1: I remember uh, doing a lot of business there as well because basically I still have, a, a, what is it, a Microsoft Pro 2, but back then that would have been like a 486 and <laughs> it was basically identical. And it was like, as you know, the only thing that was bigger was the battery on it. But they they would have that all on their shelves for two three hundred dollars. I'm like, man, this is a full fledged computer, and I had to wait five years and pay a thousand dollars. Ridiculous. All good
0: times, yeah. So it's fantastic that you have such an experience like that, and I know that will um, help you to richly serve your district. So why don't you tell
1: us a little bit more about some of the
0: priorities that you will bring as a congressional representative?
1: Well, right now, uh, even today, as we are talking, uh, yesterday, we have to be able to invest in America. We're talking about the infrastructure, the jobs, the uh, ADA uh, compliance for Amtrak, and, of course, the infrastructure that goes along with it to help us with tolls, uh, highways, and bridges. Uh, My representative thought that it was a multiple-issue bill and voted against it. Uh, And and this is what's really going to restructure uh, America. And I I have to say that, you know, even President Bush valued infrastructure. And and that's why, you know, I was surprised when this administration took office that we got to see Ms. Chow um, be the transportation secretary again. Because I knew that, you know, at least our infrastructure would be taken care of. But when we have representatives vote against it. It's just bad business for America because Mm -hmm. then then all of our flaggers, all of our construction workers, all of our technical engineers and subject matter experts who understand and want to upgrade our infrastructure to provide us safer means to get to work or be a tourist or to help our business grow Uh has voted against us. And Mm -hmm. that's going to hurt a lot more people uh, if we don't get it past the Senate now.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's true. And I think the thing that's so funny for me when I think about infrastructure investment is People forget the value it has to the economy. So it has an immediate fiscal stimulus effect, which Mm -hmm. I think in the beginning of the 117th Congress, you and I are going to have to put in a fiscal stimulus package to get our country back on track. I'm I'm like 100 percent sure that's going to be one of the very first things that we're going to have to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm going to be advocating for uh, massive infrastructure investments in that. But so it helps with jobs local economy, getting cash flowing. So that's that's one part of it. But what people don't realize, I think, is that these are actually long-term investments in our macroeconomic stability. And this is what really sets us apart from other countries around the world. And You as somebody who's been to other countries who are lesser developed can probably speak to this as well. Understanding that if you want a business of any kind, if you want manufacturing or agriculture or even small artisan uh, craft businesses or tourism, these things do not function if you do not have roads to get people in and out and to get goods in and out. Mass transportation, you know, to get things like, you know, rail and air to get products in and out of a region. Um, And if you don't have those, again, those ports, those airports built up, those goods and services and people cannot move in and out. Economies do not function. This is one of the reasons why we see across Africa the one was it one belt, one road, you know, the Chinese government initiative to build roads all over Africa is having such a massive effect there is because a lot of those countries didn't have the capacity to invest in that that infrastructure to begin with. And it dampened their economy and their ability to grow on a very large scale. And They saw China's investment as a way to do that. And so it was very attractive for them. But we forget this component because we have already a sophisticated economy where we have most of the infrastructure that we need ready to go. And we just have let a lot of it, you know, fall apart, which is a shame. So, I mean, what do you think about that? What have you seen in terms of your travels and the value of infrastructure and economic development?
1: Well, I, I think Japan was always rebuilding and keeping the infrastructure. They decided to build up. I want our communities to stop taking away our farmland to build out, but to build up. Uh, when I was in Japan, uh, China, you know, I also got to go to mainland China and see how they were using their GDP to develop. And they knew to build up, but they didn't build up smartly or safely. uh Uh, so you had entire cities that became ghost towns because they built homes for no one Uh so that was a poor decision but they have an entire infrastructure ready to go you know they can they can build two miles of wall a day if they wanted to Uh where it took president trump three years (laughs) to build a wall to build three Uh, miles when you think about efficiency it is horrible and even in afghanistan where we had our army corps engineers our combat um, engineers working we could build you know 100 miles of road a day throughout that entire country and then um, you know reinforce culverts uh you know make sure that they weren't placing mines or blowing the road up as we were building it for weeks at a time and and you know if we had 10 or 20 projects like that but we were also building you know two three miles a day and that really mattered to the community okay. because instead of it taking three to four hours to get that 20 kilometers it, it took 30 minutes it really changed the economy yep. yep in afghanistan when you wanted to get stuff from your local bazaar or farm or kalat where you manufactured your stuff in your shop to the main city okay. And yeah. now when you have the Taliban come in and want to destroy that livelihood, the residents took arm. We taught the Afghan National Police and the Army to protect that infrastructure. And here in America, we litter it every day. We mm-hmm. can do better. Yeah, absolutely. We have to do better. And it's worth investing in, too.
0: Absolutely it is. And I think unless you've been, you know, traveled, up and down you know mountain roads or country roads in lesser developed countries uh, and experience that it can take you you know three hours on the back of a motorbike to go you know sixty kilometers uh, that it's it's hard to imagine. and I think that's where we lose out in the United States is that we we really don't know how good that we have it in terms of our government's investment and caretaking of a lot of the components of our society up until recently. I will say also, because you, you mentioned about how the the buildings are not always safe. Uh, China can build fast, but they don't build safe. And, you know, my analysis as somebody who studies public administration, this goes back to regulations. And in fact, I use this as an example in my class at Florida Gulf Coast University, when you know, people get really upset and they talk about, oh, we don't want government regulation, rah, 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 because that sounds really good, right? Get government out of the way, right? Then you say, hey, but you know what that does, right? Like, you know what these these regulations often come from? They come from massive tragedy oftentimes, right? Like, that you have building true. codes because people died, When you just let anybody build a house or build a high rise or build a road and these make our lives better. Now they do make it harder sometimes and more cost intensive for business, depending on what it is, but ultimately it's better for our lives. So, you know, I just, that's another thing that I come back to the United States. I'm like, you guys don't understand like how bad it can be. Like in other countries, you can just build a house and it can fall on your head and there's absolutely nothing that anybody can do about it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And another wonderful example I can do to take us way back in time since we're kind of old is, you know, uh, Oregon Trail would take you, you know, from the East Coast to the West Coast, and it would probably take the majority of your life. We now have an infrastructure that allows you to accomplish this in less than a week. You can Mm -hmm. take a train and it takes a week. Or if you want to do a cannonball, less than 30 hours. And, you know, if you're traveling with your family, maybe two, four days to get from one coast to the other. But the difference is, is you're probably paying like 20 to to $100 in tolls. But if you tried to do the same thing in Japan, it would cost you $500, mm-hmm. you know, just to pay the tolls and the road tax for your car. Well, I would say if you use a Seishanju Kip. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you can get all the way from fukuoka to tokyo for $25. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And, and and make sure you stay on the right side of the road because even in the aqua bridge, uh, you know, it is a beautiful place and a beautiful sight to get down there.
0: <laughs> but the the station juchikip is actually the the ticket that they gave uh, they made for youth. Um uh, and it, you can get everywhere in Japan, you get like, it's like a, you get a package of like 24 hour tickets and you can go as far as you can go in 24 hours using only local trains. Yeah. So not the, not the, uh, the Shinkansen, the fast train, like not even the express train. <laughs>
1: Well, it, it sounds like we're listening to the, the Railway Journal on uh, the Japanese uh, radio. Uh, well, I forgot what it is. But, uh, yeah, you can watch them on YouTube. They talk about uh, everything that's still going on in Japan right now, uh, especially with all of their companies of Japan Railway uh, and how they're suffering through this pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm glad to see that they're still you know, trying to get tourists to come out uh, to do things, you know, we have 4th of July coming up this weekend and I, I, I was doing a news interview yesterday with Germany uh, mm-hmm. because the thing was, is like, only a quarter of the people that are going to be at the oceanfront this weekend for fireworks are going to be wearing a mask. Huh. The other three quarters of the people there, they're, they're not going to be concerned. They're They're huh. going to be in a group with their friends that they feel comfortable with and not wear a mask. The businesses are taking it seriously. Uh At least 80% of them are, but that's still not gonna stop the infection from people coming from New York, Jersey, Delaware, uh, Philly, you know, Uh or West Virginia or the other parts of Maryland and DC because they all come to Ocean City Uh and pass a contagion along. That is Uh something that is really concerning me because then it just delays our campaign and even others. Folks in Delaware are issuing the same warning, in Virginia Beach they're issuing the same warning, and I, I just want to ask, what do you have a beach where you live?
0: Yes, yes, we're coastal Southwest Florida, so we have it's all coast, it's all beaches on <laughs> the western coast. We've canceled all of ours, so
1: wow, our fireworks. Wow, wow. See, I'm lucky. I get to go to JAB. I get to be isolated. I can push everybody away and watch fireworks. I've <laughs> done that for many years before. But, you know, it, there's nothing like that feeling being in the National Monument, mm, downtown Baltimore, cool. Ocean City on the boardwalk, looking up and watching fireworks, you know, yeah. with friends and families. But now we have to actually be smart and wear a mask. Mm hmm.
0: No, I have experienced the the fireworks on the national mall before. So um it's you know the the big you know gathering the fourth of July down, down in Washington DC is, is amazing. and I don't There's know no are they doing no privacy
1: at all. Huh? <laughs> There's no privacy at all. You're you're shoulder to shoulder with everybody.
0: Yes yeah are they did are they doing it this year have you heard i haven't i've been wrapped up no, in my I own
1: life heard about the national law uh, okay. i know that we canceled trump's parade again uh, oh thank you. <laughs> <laughs> But i'm glad we canceled the military you know the
0: tanks <laughs> trump and lord oh lord lord all right back to seriousness though so i do have a question for you because there is sure. something related to trump and our service members that has come out recently, that's just absolutely appalling. And that is the issue of the bounties that purportedly have been put on American service members' lives paid to the Taliban, Taliban Um Yep. by Russia so that's at least the, the cursory understanding that I have of it based on the readings I've done um, and there's some speculation as to what Trump knew and did not know or was in the daily brief now apparently there are several people saying it was several people saying he was told explicitly about it of course which the official line from Trump and his press secretary are that he had no idea it wasn't that important and, and he never knew
1: um, well let's and- play, connect the dots okay I love this <laughs> came all right we remember that we were in a country that we shouldn't have been in it's called syria right Mm -hmm. iran's there russia is there turkey is there and we have our allies in there and i remember the whole obama fast and furious thing that the tried to pin on everybody else and we were trying to get ourselves out of syria it would have been the smart thing to do Um, because we were fighting and defeating ISIS. Iran was doing the same thing, but causing friendly fire. Trump took office. And then as these, probably these reports came in, I'm speculating here, he decided to call up Turkey and Russia and Iran and make deals, but they were still trying to sell out our Americans because, you know, when you're in a country, you don't have communications outside. In fact, even our media, is very censored for for those who are in in country right now watching or trying to listen to us right now they probably cannot hear us or know what we're saying Hmm. because it's filtered that bad um and when they got these intelligence reports they probably said oh yeah just pack up shop leave and i remember watching our military bases getting seized by russian and Turkish forces because we just simply packed up and left. Huh. Maybe that also has something to do with what Donald Trump has basically neglected or take leadership for because he, we didn't fight the Russians. We didn't fight the Iranians. We didn't fight the Turkish when they came in or, or the Turkey. So, you know, maybe he did take this threat seriously. Just a small glimpse of you know a little bit of respect for the title of president mm. he said oh yeah let's just leave everything millions of dollars of equipment just to save a couple american lives because they were threatened is is that what you know we were attacked every day in afghanistan to fight for this country but yet here we are in syria and we were just told to run away america mm. does not retreat mm. That, that was an embarrassment. It was a betrayal to every service member out there. I felt it as a personal stain on my life because, you know, my, my retirement uh, plaque is signed by President Trump. You know, I, it, it, is, it is a tarnish on all of our service members in our career. To listen to this intelligence report come through and for him to have done something or not done something and him not to care. This is why we have intelligence committees. This is why we have oversight committees uh-huh. because we know that if a leader messes up as bad as this, we impeach them, we remove them. And uh-huh. I hope Speaker Pelosi, you know, drafts new articles of impeachment and gets to the bottom of this because we are not pawns that hundred thousand dollars that they were paying as a bounty is the same amount as our sgli uh-huh. we cannot be disposable people for the uh-huh. president we cannot be out there called up to get rid of protesters when there was more protesters at your inauguration than they were in your ceremony and then you classified everything uh-huh. so connecting the dots here he could have did something he could have not done something but he didn't give any effort to make a point of it. He mm-hmm. didn't stand up for America. He just bent over and took it. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah. I, I think that this speaks to uh, not only his, his lack of leadership, which is just clear on a daily basis, but also his real lack of understanding of geopolitics and global security and international
1: relations
0: and like historical oh, geopolitics. Right.
1: I agree. I and, agree. It's because he killed cybersecurity altogether.
0: My, my word. And that's yeah. terrible. Leaving us vulnerable in a lot of different places. Um, and I think what's probably going to hit home and hopefully will hit home um, On this particular issue is that it was really, you know, our service members lives um, that were just kind of caught up in this mix around poor leadership, and poor planning and poor strategy.
1: Yeah, yeah, because, you know, everything that we left in Syria has to be accounted for. Mm. And now our enemy has our equipment, has our homes, has our information. And even if we try our best to get it all, I guarantee you there is some information that is left. But we can also take a look at our president, who openly has the nuclear football open there with the South Korea sitting at the table. And also, we'll just blatantly talk about the security defenses on his new wall. And then, of course, you know, call Russia and tell him, hey, look, we got this on your eastern seaboard. What are you going to do about it? Mm. it that is really damning because it's like you don't care about us, you're just trying to play macho. And, yeah. we don't need leaders like that.
0: So on a broader global security scale, what do you think about the United States walking back the non-proliferation treaty and all of their global disarmament commitments? How, what do you think about that scenario?
1: I think it has escalated a new weapons war uh, for the stuff that is beyond comprehension because of the downscale and the size and the advancement of nuclear weapons um, and the technologies that can be used. If you ever take a look at what's called a drone swarm or hypersonic weapons, it, it is The level of devastation is there. And now we are just saying it's an open field day to create these small-scale munitions and weapons for mass demonstration and mass use, even if they violate the Geneva's Convention. Mm -hmm. And that is just wrong. It is bringing a whole new deadly and hasty war to our suburban and city areas that are not battlefields. and like joe biden said we are fighting for the soul of this country to get us back on track to de-escalate all of these tensions so that we're not hanging up on countries like australia or canada and making bad press with japan because guess what these were people that respect us these are the people that provide us the resources so that we can <laughs> have a home have a job and in exchange, we provide them our money and our currency and our time so that they can live, too. And he just sees it as a bad trade deal because it was made by some other president. And it didn't matter if it was Carter, Bush, Reagan, or or, or Bill Clinton or Obama. Huh. Yeah. It, it didn't matter. And, of course, I forgot both Bushes, but... He he wanted to reverse everything because he wanted to have it his way as if he was born with America. Mm. And and he could make it any way he wanted to in four years. And he learned the hard way. You can't do it. Mm -hmm. And this is why he's vying for a second term to turn us into his property, his toys of America. Yeah, his authoritarian state. Yeah,
0: I think the thing that's been so disappointing for me as somebody who started their early career in international relations, I have both an undergraduate degree and a master's in it. So, you know, I spent quite a lot of time really looking at these geopolitical situations. And um, it was it's just very disturbing to me to have the president of the United States walk back diplomacy, walk back multilateral engagement, um, in lieu of being a tough guy with absolutely no understanding about the work, the collaboration and the, the networks it takes to successfully engage in, you know, peace building and trade and, um, collaboration around the biggest issues in our world. I, this has been, you know, like I said, from somebody who started in this space, having this passion for making sure that we are working together. And I think the pandemic is kind of showing us too, like actually we really are supposed to be doing this. And this is why we built things like the WHO because pandemics don't care where political borders are. They travel with the people. Um, and we are only essentially as weak as the the weakest you know state the weakest response uh to the pandemic in the world and right now it's actually the united states is is showing to be that one and so we are really not only just furthering the pandemic in our country but also furthering the global pandemic and the risk to everybody else in the world which we had built institutions to stop and mitigate this kind of stuff, but not really thinking that the United States was going to be the one that we had to, um, you know, help along the way. But here we are. So that's, that's been the thing for me that's been very disappointing is just that this idea that we can go back and just have the tough guy, and we're going to go talk, talk some, you know, tough guy talk to Kim Jong Un and, you know, <laughs> Chinese leaders mm-hmm. and Iranian leaders, and that's going to be our, our way of doing international relations and foreign and this policy
1: tough guy attitude is more of a you know what can he put in his pockets how can he benefit those who represent him and make them money so that he looks good yeah and that's that buddy buddy stuff that we were talking about earlier that got him this presidency that he has done even before actually taking the oath of office where he devastated Boeing, devastated Lockheed Martin, devastated Ford and GM just by tweet. And then he's been tweeting ever since, hurting our economy along the way and saying that it's a booming economy because guess what? If he wants to get rid of the rice market, if he wants to get rid of the sugar market, if he wants to get rid of oil, gas or automobiles or green energy, he just tweets about it and it's gonna hurt everybody. And that's why he calls everything a hoax, because it's not the way that he wants it. Yeah. And we have to remove him this November. So honestly, you have to ask everybody to vote by mail or show <laughs> up and vote.
0: Yeah, absolutely we do. And I have one more foreign policy question, because. Obviously, this is a big interest of mine, and I don't get a whole lot of people who are very excited or experienced and under you know in this area. Um, yeah, so back to my
1: IPW days. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so tell me a little bit. So the, the last question I have before we talk a little bit about um, domestic issues before we sign off for today, tell me a little bit about your thoughts on this concept of endless war. You started a little bit with it, but yeah. you know I think a lot of people look at the Engagements in Iraq and Afghanistan. They kind of go against the, Pol- the Powell doctrine of having an exit strategy, which is something we were supposed to have learned from
1: Vietnam, but we didn't actually learn it um, this time well, around. To answer the question, I think President Obama actually had a great strategy to end this and keep it from happening again by kind of chaining down a couple of our agencies that help us get into these wars in the first place. But you know even with a great exit strategy like what happened to me in uh what was it 2010-11 they basically said that we were withdrawing but then we had to surge troops to ease all of the quelling of all of the violence that was going on because they figured that they could just take over again because we were leaving you know we're, we're at some of the lowest numbers of people being deployed overseas we've surrounded russia but now president trump wants to just you know, let the floodgates open. But right. we know if we do that, Russia's gonna invade another in country, like Armenia, mm-hmm. Georgia, you know, and he, there's there's no stopping them because they got buddies like Turkey on the other side that will also fight for them mm-hmm. because they want resources from Russia. Yeah. And it is so disheartening to see all of our troops come home who have lived overseas because then they were told yeah, the, their country isn't paying enough for us to be there. You know, they're not putting into the United Nations. They're not putting into NATO. Uh-huh. Well, it takes a while for those countries to get their GDP up as high as us, India, or China, uh-huh. or the UAE, or Qatar, to have a great military. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. And this is why we have always provided an open... Exchange of information to train and coordinate with others because we want them as allies We want them as neighbors because we understand how small and finite our earth is and how little time we have here And if we are constantly at war with somebody, it's not beneficial for America at all okay. This is why President Obama put a timeline on him and tried to get us all home before Trump took office What did Trump want to do? Send more troops Right, and That was their strategy, and it was the wrong strategy. And okay. now we finally got more people home, but there are other countries like Syria where I personally just said, you know, we shouldn't have been there. We knew that ISIS went in there, but the Iranians and Russians and Turkish were already fighting it, and I felt bad for them. But, you know, that was something that was created by the mistakes of the war from Iraq. Uh-huh, uh-huh.
0: Yeah. And and for me, again, from the the international relations analysis component standpoint is I think that these are all end up being proxy wars. This is how they're going to be described moving forward. We're still fighting Russia, right, In Syria, um, you know, Afghanistan, and it's never ended, right? So this is really, you know, we thought the Cold War had ended. The Berlin Wall came down and the Soviet bloc fell apart. But it really didn't. It just shifted into a new way. And then, you know, Dick Cheney tried to just put it right back in there and just substitute Soviet for terrorist, And and and, you know, but it's actually the same actors. And so I think we're really going to look back at all of these Middle Eastern uh, conflicts and incursions as as proxy wars and this kind of longer, you know, geopolitical struggle between the United States and Russia.
1: They could do that, but, you know, when you have, like, North Korea wanting to, you know, be macho, like, you know, the inspiration of uh, Donald Trump, you know, you can't have Dennis Rodman show up anymore. You need (laughs) a new president to try to quell everything because he wants to take the whole peninsula. uh, China uh, is basically arresting and dominating uh, Hong Kong right now, and nobody's stopping them. Yep. We should be there. Yep. We should should make sure that our democracy and those territories matter for those millions of people. And there are more people in, you know, Hong Kong than there are in New York or California. Uh-huh. And you know, they want to go and invade Taiwan yep. because they believe that they own it and all the waters around it. Yep. But the only thing stopping them is a US carrier and five thousand service members. Uh-huh. And they have hundreds of millions of people. They have an entire military the size of all of our population. Uh-huh. But we have our own problems here in America, where everybody has an AR-15 and nobody wants to fight for our country. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they, they, they'd rather storm the capital because they have to wear a mask.
1: Exactly. Um, but that picture issues we have to figure out later on. Yeah,
0: I will tell you again. Like as somebody who ha- as it East Asia regional expert, um, had lived in Taiwan too. And just for the record, uh for because I've been accused of being a communist, I'm not a communist. I actually have protested against China's incursion, military incursions, uh, into Taiwan. I'm somebody who's been a longtime proponent of Taiwan's sovereignty. Um, have tons of friends who are part of the government in Taiwan. Actually had a very good friend who um, was a, a military personnel in Taiwan who came over to the United States to get training because that's one of the components that of the agreement that we have with Taiwan, is to have mutual you know military uh, training as well as uh, what we- you know weapons and equipment sold to Taiwan. We have a treaty, a, a law that says that we will come to the defense of Taiwan. And mm-hmm. I think that so few people in the United States really understand this and that actually the law that they just passed in Hong Kong that affects Hong Kong is exactly the law that they tried to pass and started to pass and then back down on in Taiwan in two thousand.
1: Three. Yeah, yeah, because that's where the Chinese party originally went before the CCP actually mm-hmm. took over. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people forget about that history because, you know, you have the National Party of Democrats and then you have the CCP of everything else. And it's hard to get good media out of there. This is like why I watch China Uncensored, because, you know, it's worth getting the actual information from the people on the ground than it is, you know, trying to watch a local news station here when they're talking about cats and dogs and politics with masks.
0: Yeah, I know. It's it's crazy. So, yeah, I've been watching that, and I know that other people have been watching it. I just, we're so wrapped up in what's going on in the United States, I think it's hard for us to to keep an eye on it. But I, I'm extremely worried about uh, China's incursions. And, of course, with the wagers. I mean, they're, they have their own... Um, essential genocide and persecution that they have going on there. And again, yes, we used to yeah. be the counterbalance to them.
1: We yeah, used so to be
0: the the country that said, you know, and using our economic might, by the way, more often than not, our trade is highly, highly intricately woven with the regional stability uh, in East Asia and, and Chinese trade, right? And we've squandered that, for what for because trump wants to feel again like a tough guy for saying oh
1: farmers to sell
0: (laughs) (laughs) i mean with not realizing that the whole the the whole leverage that we had is our investments is our businesses and that's what actually helped to push some political reforms now again a lot of people will say not as many as we wanted and not as much as we had hoped but it was a lever that we had and a And now it's just, it's all been shifted over to Trump's political agenda.
1: Exactly. And that's why we can't have another four years. We actually have to have somebody who can look another presidential leader in the face and not brush him on the shoulder for a photo op. You know, I I think that will make a big difference when we can actually have dialogue that happens either over the phone or at can't it or on the House floor. Because it will make a huge difference, you know, from the executive levels all the way down to our local communities and farmers markets, because, you know, that's some of the biggest stuff that we export, even up here, is that it goes over to Europe, and then it gets on a train, goes over to China, India, and feeds millions of people.
0: Mm. Yep. We got to think about that. So last, just before we're coming up to the end here, just tell us, so we talked a whole lot. Like I said, I'm very grateful that you would indulge me in this discussion on uh, international relations and foreign policy. But let's just end here on some of the the things that you really want to see transformed in the United States and in your district.
1: Mm. Well, I would have to say, equity and equality and the equity part has to deal with their health care and their jobs and okay. getting Medicare for all is probably the biggest thing that I can make sure that we pass and do so that they're not having to worry about how much it's going to cost per paycheck or copay or prescription. It's a set price per year and per prescription and per visit without having to worry about, Oh, do I have to have a job? in order to get health care, or do I have to worry about open enrollment to have this? And then, of course, the equality part is making sure that it's available for everyone, regardless of their disability, and making sure that there's no exclusions, because when they go into the workplace, we now know that they're federally protected. But the other thing that's not protected is the ADA guidelines. Mm -hmm. We don't often talk about this personal issue but it is something that you know your employer, if they figured it out, they can say, you aren't performing, you aren't doing this, you aren't doing that. But I was going above and beyond everything that I could do to be awarded. And then after you found out who I was or what I was doing through my advocacy, you then shut me down and wanted to terminate me in my life. Mm-hmm. And that's completely uncalled for because my job and my livelihood is supporting others even if it's in your company and to discriminate against me is wrong and i would be honored to be a co-sponsor of the era and make sure that, that gets passed by the uh, house and the senate and then signed by president joe biden
0: Absolutely. I love that vision. That's a great one, too. So good. Well, thanks so much for being with us here today, Mia. Why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about where we could find you? What kind of help and support uh, can we give you as a candidate so you can win that district and sponsor that legislation for us?
1: Well, we are currently looking for staff volunteers. Uh, so you go to miadmason.us. All right, U S. You can click on donate to contribute to our campaign or click on volunteer to actually uh, join our Facebook group and everything else. Our social media handle on everything is at MIA4MD. I'm not a doctor, but MD means Maryland. Uh-huh. So don't confuse me with the doctor I'm running against. We can do better than what he's doing.
0: Absolutely. Well, and we would be remiss if we didn't give a little bit of a shout out here at the end of our session here to the No Dem Left Behind Coalition, because that's the coalition that we're both part of. And we that's how we met. And we've been doing a lot of coordination and collaboration to flip deep red districts uh, from red to blue across the United States. What, what do you want to say about NDLB before we leave here, Mia?
1: Well, they've been an amazing, they've provided us the uh, additional moral courage and national support to give us visual and social media awareness. And this is why we have No Dem Left Behind Ambassadors to help us in our campaigns on the digital frontier through this pandemic at any time, any place to support us. Uh, it, It takes five minutes just to, you know, share our visions and our medias and our voice And you can go to the No Done Left Behind and sign up. It is that simple. You can contribute to them. We've been strictly grassroots the entire time and it gets split between all of us candidates and it makes a huge difference uh, when we as a nation are united. And that's why we have candidates from all these red rural districts fighting and vying to make them blue. That's No done Left Behind.
0: Absolutely. And it's no dot com. And uh, you can also find them on Twitter and Facebook and I think Instagram, too. I can't remember. I'm pretty sure Instagram, too. I understand.
1: (laughs) Well, it's time to get going. Uh, Spouse is calling me for tech support. (laughs) I guess I'm stealing too much bandwidth. (laughs) <laughs> well,
0: you better get to it. Well, thank you so much for being here today. We so appreciate it. And you know, best of luck with the rest of your campaign. And I know that you and I are gonna see each other again, but our listeners, this is probably the last time that they're gonna hear from you uh in the next couple of months at least. So thank you so much. Um and is it it's a Mia D Mason dot us? That's correct.
1: Yes, that is correct. And Perfect. they can also give me a call because I'm an actual representative who answers the phone. At four one zero nine four Mason. Perfect. There you, you go. So the numbers it's six two seven six six.
0: There you go. And I'm Dr. Cindy Banier, and this is Dr. Cindy Speaks, and we will see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dr. Cindy Speaks. If you'd like to learn more about her campaign, go to cindybanier.com or connect with her directly at vote at CindyBanier.com. We love connecting with people. Contents of this podcast are paid for and approved
1: by Friends of Sandy Banier.